0: Dr. Tom Hanna is one of the original John Monash scholars. He got his scholarship back in 2004. Tom holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Sydney and a Bachelor of Science with first-class honours in physics from ANU. He used his John Monash scholarship to study for a PhD in atomic and laser physics at Oxford before working as a postdoctoral fellow in the United States he now runs a specialty consulting firm called Hypercube Scientific he has also published a number of peer-reviewed journal articles and written book chapters dr tom hanna a very warm welcome to the spollat bo- Dr. Tom Hanna, a very warm welcome to The Scholar's Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Justin. Great to be here.
0: So, 20 years on, how have the General Sir John Monash Scholarships changed in the two decades since you were first being interviewed?
1: They have They have changed, grown, developed and evolved, Justin. It's uh, part, I suppose, of going from eight scholars to... Well, I don't even know how many. It's about you
0: 250
1: know. now. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? And um, all of the things that uh, are now very formalized and very full and very busy, like the, uh, the Leadership Academy for uh, uh, alumni, uh, like the support during uh, your studies, like scholar catch-ups in different parts of the world, um, those were all very informal and ad hoc and happened when someone got an idea back then. I remember the first UK Scholars get-together. Uh, we had a punt race in Oxford and, um, and it was really just a few of us emailing each other, uh, whereas, whereas now there's a, a London symposium, there's a Sydney symposium, there's, there's uh, all sorts of things um, and you know, a busy WhatsApp channel where, where people are always uh, are talking to each other.
0: So your specialization, Tom, is in the theory of ultra-cold atomic and molecular collisions. That's quite the mouthful. So could you explain this concept in simpler terms, if you can, and share an application of this knowledge that might surprise us?
1: Well, Jesse, I've spent 20 years looking for a shorter way to say it. It'll remain a mouthful. But I guess the the short way to to talk about it is is I I studied the the physics of atomic collisions, the things banging into each other, um, when the atoms get very, very cold, close to absolute zero. And, um, you might've heard of the wave particle duality, uh, issue of of, of matter. And and at those low temperatures, that's where the wave nature really starts to come out. So if if two atoms hit each other, you know, below a millionth of a degree above absolute zero, um, then the interaction looks a lot more like two ripples on a lake passing through each other, uh, than it does like two tennis balls bouncing off each other. And uh, so that changes the way we think about it. It changes the way we do calculations about it. Um, And I was into the control of these collisions using laser beams and magnetic fields, uh, which allowed a very, very high degree of control. Um, The beauty of such atomic systems is that you can measure them extremely accurately uh, and you can calculate their properties very accurately. Um, And that creates all sorts of uh, fruitful collaborations between theory and experiment and the eventual applications which are things like atomic clocks.
0: What is an atomic clock? Uh,
1: an, an atomic clock is is the basis of, of our time standard. So the second is defined in terms of uh, an oscillation frequency between two particular hyperfine states of cesium and um, clocks are devices that measure these transitions and help us to very accurately define and measure the second though the passing of time. And so um, NIST, amongst other things, maintained the time standard for the United States. NIST was where I used to work. Um, you can still go to my favorite website, uh, Justin, www.time.gov, <laughs> uh, and they will tell you the time very accurately. Very good. Um, <laughs> And anyway, well, what's doesn't really underlie what happens when you go to time.gov, but enough layers behind that are uh, are the atomic clocks that that NIST and others are, are building to maintain, um, you know, uh, the the accurate measurement of time.
0: So, could you share a pivotal moment from your postdoctoral work? You mentioned the United States there that that helped you bridge the gap between theoretical physics and some of the real-world applications?
1: Uh, I guess it depends what's real-world enough for you. I, I worked with experimentalists all the time, and and that was part of what I enjoyed. So things I would calculate would be being measured in labs within months, uh, not within years. Uh, and so, yeah, I worked with one group in, in Massachusetts that had Measured some particular collisional resonances, uh, and I, you know, did the analysis to explain those and told them where they could find more, and they went and and did that right. So, so there was that experimental that was real world. Someone was measuring it. The applications uh, beyond that, uh, I guess, I was never directly involved with. Justin, in the it gets to you know precise measurement and manufacturing.
0: Collaborating with experimental groups worldwide sounds very interesting so tell us about one of the collaborations that stood out to you and its impact
1: one of the collaborations i i, I was involved with you know involved several groups around the world experimentalists and theorists uh, and so look it was notable to me um for experience in how large numbers of people work together right it's, and you know, a distributed project uh, back in the days when, you know, such things were perhaps rarer um, or I don't know, maybe they weren't, but it was my first experience of it anyway. Um, and so so the, the way you can, you know, the, the fine line, Justin, between a competitor and a collaborator um, and so a sort of healthy degree of competition between the different yes. groups and approaches, um, but still working together very positively towards a shared goal. And we've produced a pretty good piece of work uh, around understanding of uh, some of the atomic systems we were looking at.
0: So you've had quite the journey, Tom, from academia to industry. So how did your background in in physics shape your approach to problem solving in the business world
1: Justin, i think part of my success as a physicist and then as a consultant then as an employee in a large company and then as a consultant again was it was always being willing to have a go so i would get these experimental groups coming to me and saying hey we need to understand there's things going on in our experiments and you're know, are you in a position to help. And I'd say, well, you know, I've done peripheral things. I've never done exactly that, but let's have a go together. And that informed my approach in industry as well. I never send people away saying, hey, that's not my job or that's not my particular uh, background. Although I would be very happy to recommend someone else if I didn't know. In, in a lot of fast-changing corporate environments, you've got to be willing to do that. And then now as a small business person, right? I, I can't have a specialist in every area. Uh, but I can have generalists who will quickly learn what is needed for the next problem that comes to hand. We'll
0: get to what you're doing in a moment. I'm keen to know your work at, at Fortescue Metals Group. So you've transitioned from technical consulting to, the, to then the head of supply chain analysis there. So what skills from your academic and research days proved valuable in, in that role?
1: More of the same, I'd, I'd say. Around having a go. Never mistake your job description for your job. Was what I used to say back then.
0: That's very good advice.
1: I guess I, I, I should say two things about that that Fortescue job. One was that I got it through the foundation after uh, meeting one of the Fortescue directors at a, a, a at a Monash dinner.
0: The power of networking, Tom. Power of
1: networking, Justin, and you know, and for twenty years I've, I've benefited from from the Monash uh, networking effect. Uh, it's been tremendously useful at a number of levels, including at Fortescue and and then when I, I went into business too. Uh, and, and the other is, is that head of supply chain analysis might be a slightly inflated title uh, that I gave myself. At the time. <laughs> Very good. I was the supply chain analysis department. To my earlier point, right, it meant I had to do a bit of everything uh, around understanding and optimizing the supply chain, by which we mean... Um, the the rail and uh, port infrastructure that support efficiently moving their their products uh, from the desert to the sea. Sorry, to your original question, how did how did how did, how did academia help? Okay, yeah. um, I think as as a physicist, you learn a lot about uh, uh, analysis and order of magnitude estimation and um, hopefully critical thinking skills and checking that. You've done the right thing afterwards, right? Uh, So when you go in the industry and when you go into a fast-paced corporate environment, which, yeah, Fortescue is nothing if not um, fast-paced, the the problems get simpler certainly than what I spent three and a half years solving during my PhD. Um, But the challenge is quickly cutting to the chase, Mm. quickly Mm. stripping away, you know, what part of this is you know, corporate and what part of this is really the underlying operation or physics? Um, and, so, and, and what value can I add uh, in a time frame fast enough that we can make a decision and actually extract value from it for the company?
0: You mentioned Monash. So the Monash scholarships are focused on leadership. What in your view makes a good leader?
1: I've never thought there's, there's a simple answer or a single answer uh, to what makes a good leader. And particularly in the Monash context, <laughs> look around the 250 people, there is tremendous diversity. And from the beginning, even amongst the, the initial cohort of eight, tremendous diversity. And that's always been, I think, one of the biggest strengths of the foundation. There's no single image of what's a Monash scholar. Uh, or what we're looking here if, if you can you know show yourself remarkable you're in and um i think for, for me leadership's always built around integrity uh, and certainly as as um, as a leader that's what i try to model and live every day i'm not necessarily the greatest visionary i'm not necessarily the greatest communicator uh, i'm certainly not the greatest you know at inspiring people, I, I, I tell people of, of, of at, at my company, I want us to be known for integrity and then intelligence. Uh, so in that order, because uh, there's plenty of smart people around, but proving that you're the smart person who is sincerely on a customer's side, genuinely there to seek their success, that's harder and, and I want that to be us.
0: Well, let's talk about your business. You set up Hypercube Scientific. That's that's a bold move. Why did you do that, and what does your company do?
1: I I was I was an accidental entrepreneur. Yes, uh, I think uh, uh, yeah uh, a lot of the best companies start by accident and um,
0: or in mum's garage somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, and actually, actually, after we bought a house here in Sydney, it was so small. My office was the garage uh, for a while. Uh, it always felt very startup-ish. That was good. Uh, after four or five years at FMG, I, I decided it was time to move on for uh, various personal reasons. And and my wife and I also decided <coughs> uh, to move back to the East Coast. I'm from Canberra originally, um, and we've ended up here in Sydney, so I've got the family close-ish, uh, and that's been a bit better. Um, so, so, you know, we came back here. I, I got another job that was okay. Um, Fortescue kept calling. And saying, Can you help with this? Can you help with that? We
0: want you back.
1: Well, no, not really want you back. I mean, we'd, we'd discussed that I could help out with things as a consultant. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, I honestly couldn't tell if they were being nice or if they meant it. Um, but sure enough, they did call and there we were. So you know, I registered an ABN and I was helping out a bit at night and earning some extra money and that was great uh and and that just grew uh to the point where i realized uh consulting rates being much higher that uh, it was costing me money to go to work each day uh so i stopped going to work it's not supposed to
0: happen that way yes hypercube was born yeah
1: uh and so that was about five years ago i've I've been Mm. full-time with hypercube for five years now
0: and so yes so what do you do what what does the business do?
1: So we do a few things. Um, the, the, the main theme, as you might guess from the, the supply chain analysis I talked about, is helping companies extract extra value and efficiency from their capital-intensive equipment. Uh, so you're going to buy a new train for tens of millions of dollars to carry iron ore through the Pilbara. Uh, you're going to build a new deep-water berth in a port, which is far more money again then you'll naturally be concerned about extracting as much value from that as you can. Um, And so we build dynamic simulations of uh, large and complicated, tightly coupled, highly dynamic business operations. Um, And we calibrate that against real operational data. Uh, And then we help people ask what ifs of their data uh, uh, of the model, uh, understand what's... Uh, holding them back from achieving more, uh, and what the most efic- efficient investments or changes are that they can make to uh, to do better. Stick with my former employer as as an example, right? That they, they export about five and a half tons of iron ore every second.
0: That's a lot.
1: That's a lot. It's two hundred million tons a year, or getting up towards that sort of order of magnitude, right? What I, I tell people is, you know, once you're at that sort of Bulk scale, nothing is too small to be interest. If you can save them one cent on every one of those tons, just a cent, um, that's worth two million bucks a year.
0: When you put it like that, it makes a big difference, doesn't it?
1: It really does make a big difference, yeah. So nothing is too small, right? Um, And sometimes we are working to very uh, specific current day operational issues. Some days we're helping very long term planning and where are the long-term investments are going to be. Um, So we've done a lot in mining over the years uh, with my background. Coming out of that though is infrastructure like ports or railways. Uh, And then um, might seem quite a jump, but it's got a lot in common with highly utilized capital intensive equipment uh, where we're getting more and more into healthcare. So if you think about patients around a large hospital being routed in and out of you know, a few very expensive pieces of equipment, a CAT scanner or a particular rig needed for, for heart surgery. It's it's a logistics problem. How do we efficiently run that facility and help more people and make sure we're helping people in the right order? Um, so that's, that's sort of the main game, these dynamic simulations. And then we also build scheduling tools. Uh, so we help people run their operations in real time, interface with live data, so the, sh- the people running the show, the schedulers, know that they're looking at the right thing and have everything they need to hand to make the correct decisions, uh, and conversely, that they're not being distracted with anything they don't need to see to make the right decision.
0: So, Tom, your work today involves dealing with a lot of data and data within different organizations. So what advice would you give to businesses that are looking to perhaps transition to a more data-led approach successfully?
1: Um, I've worked with with customers right along um, the various stages of that journey. Uh, Justin, and I guess the first thing i say to them is the journey tends to be long. Work on the data itself before you work on what you're doing with it. And then understand that it's an iterative process, right? So, so so if you don't have the right data capture and storage systems, then you should expect to be very limited uh, in the applications that uh, you can take from it. there's a saying in modeling as a garbage in, garbage out. You might've heard, so so, say, so if the data you're feeding it is, is, is rubbish, it doesn't matter how, how good your modeling work is, you're still gonna end up with rubbish, right? Um, and and um, that said, you know, once you've got some data, you should start using it, right? And see, uh, cause, cause you, you don't really understand where your gaps are until you uh, try to do something. Um, so, so it's an iterative approach. Um, And then lastly, the the translation, right? So, I mean, another part of the scientist training, I think, is, you know, sense-checking your stuff in a a valuable way, which sounds easy to say, um, but it's not easy to do, um, to ask yourself, have I just used my clever analytical techniques to prove something that is obviously ridiculous? Um, And and so, you know, at HyperCube, we try to, you know, do the science and do the maths, but understand at the same time the commercials. Is it going to work in the bottom line uh, and bring value to the client? Uh, and also the operations, right? Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I talk to CEOs and I talk to train drones. Uh, I talk to the guy who's actually going to have to go out and make it happen in reality and deal with all the all the complexities and and um, ins and outs of of actually doing things when they're implemented. So, hopefully, we're not suggesting too many things that are, are outlandish and unachievable.
0: So, juggling a professional career and family life can often be challenging. So, how do how do you manage to balance your time between the work you're doing? and spending time at home with the family?
1: I'm humbled to be asked that. I don't know that it's harder for me than for anyone else. And, and, and in some ways it's probably easier, right? Because when you're a business owner, you do have flexibility that uh, a lot of people don't have uh, in, in their careers. And and the work we, we do is also quite amenable to taking you know an hour or two out when kiddo has something interesting going on at school. Um, it's, it's certainly, um, you know, that being a business owner is, is certainly a two person job. My, my wife is tremendously supportive uh, of it. And, um, you know, the, 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 I, I suppose in their own way that uh, our three young kids are as well.
0: As you mentioned earlier, you've been involved with the foundation for 20 years on and off what do What does your ongoing involvement with the foundation look like after so long?
1: I don't review a lot of scholarship applications anymore. Uh, I'm glad to say there's enough other people around who can who can, can help with that particular onerous task. I am on the uh, the advisory board of the Leadership Academy, and so that's sort of the the bedrock for involvement, I guess and we meet a a couple of times a year, and and May Somali, she's the other scholar uh, on the board, uh, and I, we've... we
0: we, we know May.
1: She's terrific, yes. Yeah, she is. And and so we plug into a few things uh, coming out of that. I still show up at the odd scholars event in Sydney
0: when I can. For a cup of tea, rubber chicken dinner... Find a cup
1: of something stronger sometimes, <laughs> and yeah, look, that's it. I, I, and and look, I now support the the foundation financially. I'm a, I'm a chairman circle member. I suppose a scholars circle member too. Tom, what about a
0: moment? If you look back on your career, which I must say is is far from over, so please bear that in mind. Where you you made it? You might have had a. A setback, or there was an unexpected turn, something that you weren't expecting that now that you look back, it provided a, a valuable insight or some, some personal growth.
1: Well, well, there was the last three months of, of my PhD, uh, which, which were tacked on after I found I'd made a fairly fundamental mistake. Oh, dear. In part of the work. Uh, that was not a happy day. <laughs> discover that i'd accepted my own moonshine
0: how did you find out about that was it an email or a phone call or a <laughs> hey you've uh
1: no i i realized i was wrong i i, I found a, a bug in in some of my code I, uh which i fixed and and some beautiful curves which we'd all agreed were beautiful you know outputs that were just exactly what they should have been were uh, were wrong uh, and, you know, it was a case of too good to be true, and it really was.
0: Then you start to scramble.
1: Then it was me. I realized I was wrong, and I told my boss, and I told my, my group, and I uh, told the, uh, you know, the people you submit your thesis to that, yes, I know, I said I'd be submitting on this date.
0: However, we need to do some more work.
1: And, look, it was very it was very character-forming. Uh, the next few months of, of, of scrambling, as you put it, uh, but also the initial, you know, days of like, "Hey, we've got a situation here. Mm. Um, we've got to do the right thing and and tell people uh, and fix it damn fast."
0: Which no doubt you did.
1: Which I, no doubt I did. And and look, that's um, that is some that was character forming at every level. Um, and and that is something i i still carry forward right mm. mistakes will happen mistakes are okay um and the sooner you own it and respond to it um yeah, the sooner and easier it is to fix
0: well that leads nicely into my final question for you tom which is if you were to give yourself one piece of advice to a younger tom hannah as he was embarking on the academic journey, the, your professional career, if you were to reflect upon that, what, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Justin, I think I, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, a generalist rather than a specialist. I enjoy doing lots of different things and, and learning new stuff. And, uh, and a PhD doesn't, you know, I mean, it doesn't stop you, but it, it does tend to put you on a very narrow and focused path. And, and I think if, if I could have realized, you know, this uh, this this love of diversity in work and and, and surroundings earlier, I, I might have, you know, been a happier guy at some points. Uh, so I think, the, you know, the advice to the Tom of 20 years ago would have been to, to you know, try more different stuff and, and think about what you want to do and where you want to be. But on the other hand, Justin, I... I eventually got there, and I was at the time a, a strong and hot-headed youth who would not have listened. <laughs> but that'll, that'll just have to be the way we go.
0: Very good. Dr. Tom Hanna, great to catch up with you on the Scholars Podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and all the very best in the years ahead. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.